Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Times veteran war correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, isn't usually a man who notices handbags. It was a black leather bag, and oddly it had a label Ahmed Tham on the side, man and woman. Various objects came out, and one of the first was a book she'd written on law. I mean, it's a highly educated woman. She'd worked in law for more than 30 years. This was a book she had written, and there was a bullet hole straight through the middle of it, which had kind of exploded the back of the book off. This particular handbag belonged to Gadria Yassini, a judge in Afghanistan's Supreme Court. Last month, Judge Yassini had been clutching this handbag shielding behind it as a gang of masked gunmen showered her car with bullets. She was shot in the chest five times and died on the spot. Then there was a pair of eyebrow tweezers which had taken a head-on hit from a pistol bullet, so they'd been bent into a kind of snake shape. Then there was a little notebook. Everything was punched by bullets. And there were three bullets sitting in the bag which had gone in ricocheted off whatever, the tweezers and the book and all the rest of it, and were still there. So three spent bullet heads. Four days after the attack, Anthony Lloyd was in Judge Yassini's home, talking to her grieving sons as they sifted through what was left of their mother's bullet-riddled handbag. But what I found particularly moving, the boys didn't know it was there. As they leafed through the bullet-punched book she'd written, inside was a letter which had also, it was folded. A bullet had gone straight through that. So as they unfolded it, there were four big holes in it. And it was a Mother's Day letter that the boys had written to their mum the previous year. And they were seeing it now for the first time. They said, oh, we didn't know mum had kept this letter. So there was this acutely emotional moment for them as they laid out the contents of their murdered mother's handbag on the ground before us. And it was quite a moment. It was early on the morning of January the 17th. Judge Yassini and her colleague, fellow Supreme Court judge Zakir Harawi, were ambushed in a car on their way to work. They were left to die in a hail of bullets and splintered glass. Their killings are part of an ongoing wave of daily assassinations that's robbing Afghanistan of its intellectual and educated elite. Journalists, cultural figures, political figures, leading members of civil society are being assassinated. Basically, this element of urban society that most represents the best changes of the last 20 years and offers Afghanistan its best hope for the future are being culled in Kabul. 
With the country's future hanging in the balance, should American and British troops be leaving Afghanistan on May the 1st? Donald Trump was determined to withdraw at all costs, but will President Biden want to change direction? And as a deadly surge of violence grips the country, what is the peace deal with the Taliban really worth? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, murder in Kabul. The aim of this assassination campaign is to get those elements of Afghan society that are going to be most resistant, most challenging, and most vocal to any Taliban return to leave. And the assassination campaign is doing that very effectively. Anthony Lloyd knows Afghanistan well. He's been covering perpetual war there for more than 25 years. On his recent visit, he found the country at another point of crisis. Amid a spate of assassinations and a surge in violence, the deadline for NATO troop withdrawal loomed large. It was also a crucial moment for the prospect of a peace deal. Negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government have been stalling in Doha. These are talks based on a peace accord that was signed between the Taliban and the Americans last year on February the 29th, which set the schedule for an American withdrawal from Afghanistan, a full American withdrawal, after 20 years there. It's been two decades since America and Britain went into Afghanistan, soon after 9-11, back in 2001. The withdrawals have taken place by the 1st of May, when the last 2,500 American troops would leave. So the 1st of May is looming up as the final deadline, actually, which means that this current point in time is very interesting, not least because talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban are sort of, I can't even say gridlocks, because they're not really happening in Doha. Negotiating parties from both sides are there, but there's not a lot going on. Meantime, You've got this horrible assassination campaign going on inside Kabul, not just Kabul, other towns and, and, and provinces as well, where educated middle class people, journalists, cultural figures, political figures are being assassinated, most undoubtedly by the Taliban. Basically, this element of urban society that most represents the best changes of the last 20 years and offers Afghanistan its best hope for the future are being culled in Kabul as these talks in Doha are kind of shambling on towards the May the 1st deadline. Anthony arrived in Afghanistan three days after the murder of the female judges. In the last few months alone, more than 150 Afghans have been killed in a series of targeted attacks, unleashing fear across the country and a wave of horror across the watching world. This is more than two judges being assassinated. You've got to imagine in Afghanistan exactly what those women would have gone through to get to the position of being a Supreme Court judge. There would have been all sorts of obstacles in that male-dominated society in order for those women to get to their positions. And so for them to be murdered side by side in the back of a car on their way to work is not only a terrible toll of educated women. What message does that send to other women 
who must wonder what they've been fighting for over the last 20 years. Was it worth it? To find out more about what had happened, Anthony visited Judge Yassini's home. So I'm taken into a room. There's about five or six males there and some little children. And very quickly, the two young males introduce themselves as Qadriya's sons, Abdul Wali and Abdul Wahab. I have only one brother, and he's coming right now. I think that's him. He's my older brother. He's 21, and I'm 18. What is your name? My name is Abdul Wali Yassini. And your brother's name? Abdul Wahab Yassini. These two boys are very, very charming young men. One spoke fluent English and the other spoke pretty good English. And so immediately the kind of filter of interpretation was removed. Had your mum ever said that she would, anybody had threatened her in recent times or...? Not at all. She was always uh, peaceful about everything. She thought, I have not hurt anybody and no one will hurt me. And she was always Do a positive good person. Good thing will come back to you. We would always go out together. We, we had no fear for anything. And, so we had quite a acute and intense conversation in the family home. There were three uncles present too, the brothers of the murdered judge and some of their children. But these two sons were talking to me and then suddenly one of them, Abdul Wali, the 18-year-old, said, If you, if you don't mind, if I will go and bring you the, her, my mother's handbag. There's some detail if you want to see about the accident, some bullet shots to it. Yeah. Hey, do you want me to go and get mum's handbag? And I was quite surprised by this sudden suggestion. It had just been returned to them by the police. But I was immediately curious because for me, this woman's handbag was going to allow me a glimpse into the details of her life and maybe her death too, more than just being a name. These are the places that the bullet hit. Yeah. Through this one of her books, which has, the bullet has got through it. Here's a letter that we have written for her. It says, dear mother, it was, she had kept it with herself. It was, uh, we, wrote, we wrote that, I think, on the Mother's Day. One, years, one year ago. On the Mother's Day, and she yeah. kept it there. There's just, it says, dear mother, and we, me and my brother wrote something for her, just to tell her how much we love her. She had kept this with herself the whole time in her book. How were her sons holding up? They were in such shock. They couldn't really, they could talk in that sort of adrenalized articulation that people have in very fresh grief. They certainly weren't going to cry in front of me. They were, they were really shocked. You can see the whole room was really heavy with, with sadness. Yeah, that's how I describe it. That energized, kind of hyper-energized articulation which people have in shock or grief. They were also scared. They were scared that whoever had killed their mother was going to come and kill them as well. That fear seemed to be spreading across the city. Anthony also visited the family of Judge Zakia Harawi, the other female judge who was killed on the day. He spoke to her brother, Haji Mustafa Harawi, through an interpreter. Hello, Nemas. Uh, she's my elder sister. Um, we used to live together, and this is my father's house. So the brother of Zakia... He was very, very close to his sister. His sister, Zakia, was actually unmarried. Same deal, Supreme Court judge, supremely, therefore, well-educated, motivated. She was 47 years old. She wasn't married and didn't have children of her own, but she was very close to all her young nephews who happened to be 
in the house that morning as they're all having breakfast. Zakia has had breakfast with her brother. A government car, which is the normal car she goes to work with, it's unarmoured. It turns up to collect her for work. In the car, there's obviously the driver. Kadri is already there sitting in the back with her handbag. Zakia turns to her brother and her nephews, says goodbye. And then again she shouted and said goodbye again. I'm surprised at that. OK, fine, goodbye. They remember her saying goodbye twice. She stopped in the door and said with some emphasis, goodbye again, which they all now recall. She walks a few steps out of the door, sees the car across the street and gets into it. She closes the door just as it pulls away. Somebody shoots the driver straight through the windscreen. It goes through his shoulder. The car stops. But at that moment, at least two gunmen rush up to the side door, start shooting through, open the passenger doors and shoot both judges multiply at very close range. They then get on a motorbike and zoom away. In the meantime, in the brother's house, just 20 yards away, they're all having breakfast and all the kids, I'm talking about kids five, six, seven, as soon as they hear blam, 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 blam from the street, the first thing they say is, our aunt. I hear shootings. Then my kids and everybody shouted, our aunt, our aunt. And they rush outside just as the motorcycle disappears, all of them. As we run toward the vehicle, I saw her body in the second seat, plus another judge sitting on her side. Zaki was dead by that point. She'd been shot in the face and chest and neck. Kadri was very badly injured and was dying. Both judges, successful Afghan women, were killed on that patch of road on their way to work that morning. Afghanistan has been embroiled in conflict for 40 years now. America has had a military presence there for 20. But recently, the country has been changing. And it's these changes that pose a threat to the Taliban. People see Afghanistan in the West as largely the Afghanistan of pre-2001. This is a Taliban-dominated Afghanistan where the echoes of jihad still run throughout society. Afghanistan was always more than jihad. It was always more than the Taliban. And I'm talking about particularly in the last 20 years, post-2001, is a very pluralistic, very vibrant, very mixed society. It's got a huge array of different sectarian groups, different ethnic groups, of course, if you want to look for an, a village in a remote valley with a conservative elder running that village who has very little contact from the outside world, yeah, you can find that. You can also find an Afghan who's a qualified LA lawyer. You know, I mean, Afghanistan is many, many different things. And in urban areas, that's a very well-educated society. You know, there's huge hundreds of thousands of women have been educated at least to some level since 2001. It's had a, a vibrant media scene. And it's this new Afghanistan which is being targeted by the Taliban. So the Taliban hope is that when the last American soldier leaves, so all these other people who they associate with the Americans as American creations, journalists, civil society leaders, human rights officials, and such like, will leave too. And to encourage them to leave, they've started to kill them now. The gunmen who murdered the judges haven't yet been caught but a number of others involved in the recent spate of killings have. By the time Anthony visited in mid-January... They'd arrested 37 people for involvement in the assassinations in the previous 102 days who had either confessed or were still in the interrogation process. 
And they've done, I think, another 250 plus preventative arrests. But it's very difficult because it's not so much the Taliban are at the gates of Kabul, the Taliban are inside the gates of Kabul. Some of these killers are people who are drawn from the community inside Kabul. It's not just that if the Taliban are behind the assassinations, it's not just that they do it all. What you'll get is a local Taliban commander who's got a loose brief to like send teams in to kill 10 prominent middle-class Afghans. So he'll do that. He'll get some of his guys in, but in order to get the weapons right, case where the houses are and observe the, I don't know, day-to-day traveling details of the targets, they will collaborate and communicate with existing criminal networks inside Kabul. These are criminal networks which might not necessarily have any ideological affiliation with anybody. And so it becomes quite complicated. It's not a matter of just looking for Taliban that might have come in. It becomes quite opaque as to exactly what the chains of command and lines of communication are. Anthony managed to speak to two young Taliban detainees who were being held by the NDS, the Afghan Intelligence Service. The two men were 19 and 20, and they'd confessed to taking part in the assassination of a well-known civil society leader in December. You've got to be very wary when you're interviewing prisoners. For a start, these two young guys had confessed, but they hadn't been to trial yet. There was a strong possibility, not a certainty, that they might have been tortured. So when they're presented to me, I, I see them separately. First off, the first guy, I think he was 20 years old, he gave me just some sort of dumb-mouthed, rote confession, blurbling away for five minutes about what he had done and all the rest of it. I was horrified. I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, this, I hadn't even asked him anything. I just sat there. But then you have to take control of the, the situation to actually find out what element of truth he's telling or whether, you know, he's just been told to say that or we're going to wire you up to the electrics again. And that you have to take some element of control after they've said that bit in checking out simple details. Where are you from? What did your dad do? What's your job? How old were you when you started? Questions which seem a little removed from actually, you know, the killing bit. Uh, And then when you start along those lines, you get an impression of, okay, this is beginning to make sense. Are there discrepancies in the story? There should be discrepancies in the story because actually you find most (laughs) true accounts have discrepancies in. If everything fits too tightly, you're probably being spun a line. As it happens, if there's the odd hole in it, that's that's war and memory and, and killing. And what did they tell you? Were they able to confirm, you know, were they Taliban as we'd understand it? They were Taliban as we'd understand it, but they were much younger Taliban. I mean, the, you know, as I say, 2019, they had both joined the Taliban when they were about 16 at their local high school annoyed at what they perceived as as foreign occupation and the corruption of local officials. And then they had been introduced to relatively dynamic local commanders, sort of prestigious local commanders, and who had them in the thrall of, you know, a new kind of life, a motorbike, a purpose, a being. And these two prisoners that you spoke to, did they seem remorseful now? They looked like they were really tired. They looked like they were pretty freaked out. I didn't expect them really to say, gosh, we're so sorry, what have we done? 
nor certainly as a journalist did I ask for that. I was interested to know where they'd come from, what they were about and how they did it. That said, you've got to respect the fact, ultimately, you're talking to a prisoner. I'm not the judge here. These guys haven't been to trial. I'm a foreigner. I've come into a prison environment and I'm going to speak to two detainees. I'm not there to grandstand or stare them down or, or anything like that. So I speak softly and respectfully to these guys and I say, you don't have to answer my questions for a start. I'm not an intelligence agent. I'm not an interrogator. I don't work for a law enforcement agency. It's helpful if you can help me understand what better happened in this incident by answering questions which I'm going to give to you. And if you want to answer them, that's really helpful. But that's as far as it goes. It's not like I'm firing questions at them. And in terms of these assassinations that have been happening in the last few months, have the Taliban taken responsibility? No, not at all. And they're very wise not to take responsibility because if they said, yeah, it's us, we're whacking people while we're sitting around at Doha to talk peace, there'll be international condemnation and a lot of pressure on them to stop. But more to the point, people in Kabul would know absolutely it's the Taliban doing it and there might be a bit of more consolidated and solid feeling about staying on. But as it is, the Taliban have always said, hey, it's not us, we're not doing it. We think it's the government doing it because some of these journalists and some of these civil society leaders have been speaking out against the government over its corruption, over its abuses, over perhaps its its negotiating tactics in Doha. So the Taliban tactic of denying these killings has actually succeeded in spreading the fear and the uncertainty. Now, it's unequivocally the Taliban that are doing these killings. However, there might be other groups involved in some specific, fairly localised instances as well. But what you do find in any society where people have lost such control of their day-to-day lives, that conspiracy theories multiply. If we do think this is largely the Taliban behind the attacks, how does the violence and the tactics they're using, how does it compare to what we've known of Taliban terror previously? Before Doha, the Taliban would strike against targets in Kabul, often using suicide attacks, very large-scale, catastrophic attacks that would kill perhaps dozens of people in one go. But the thing about those attacks was it united everybody in, in loathing towards the insurgents who committed them, but also people's logic in Kabul was, hey, it's a big city. You'd be very unlucky if that happened in the street down which you were walking. But these targeted attacks, I mean, these are daily People killed by sticky bombs, which are like magnet mines put under your car or shot down in drive-bys or or by motorcycle assassins. It's a randomness, but it's a specific randomness. It is random if you are from a band of society, an educated strata. And that's really frightened people. And more than frightened people, people have begun to leave in droves. I mean, Kabul, the intelligentsia are on their way out. As violence and fear grip the country and the people who should be the future of Afghanistan leave, the deadline for NATO troop withdrawal inches closer. What hope is there for peace? We'll have more from Anthony in just a moment. You can access more in-depth foreign coverage every day with a subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash Stories of Our Times. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Last February, after nearly two decades of war, the Americans and the Taliban signed a historic agreement. But this wasn't a peace deal. It was effectively a schedule for American withdrawal from the country. And some would argue it made peace even harder for the Afghan government to achieve. The construct of the deal was flawed. For a start, there was no monitoring of Taliban adherence to what they had promised in the deal, for example, a reduction of violence, that was then harnessed to the American schedule. For example, if the Taliban had provably reduced violence by point X, the Americans could say, then we will reduce our troop levels to level Y. If, as negotiations go on, you reduce violence more, we therefore will reduce our troops more. The Americans didn't do it like that. They said, we're going to be out of here by the 1st of May, 2021. Come what may, it would seem. We hope that you reduce violence. That is just not the way you do it. It's like a, trying to grow a garden in the desert. You don't just dump a whole lot of flowers and a signature there and say, presto, we've got a garden, we're out of here. It takes ages preparing the soil, making the place fertilised, irrigating. I mean, this is a war in many respects that's been going on for 40 years. So the general perception of Doha was that it was a gambit by President Trump in order to be able to say to his electorate ahead of elections last November, listen, I said I was going to end forever wars and bring our boys home, and I've done it without any attention to the detail of the matter or whether peace would have any chance of being lasting in Afghanistan. The other side of that is that there is no doubt that foreign troops do have to leave Afghanistan, the bulk of them, at some point sooner rather than later. They've been there for 20 years. The high water mark on whatever they did manage to achieve has long since gone. Afghans have to work out 
and as an absolute necessity, some sort of peace to live amongst themselves. There's no doubt about that. Despite its flaws, Doha is probably the best chance that they've had of any kind of peace for the last 20 years. However, that's not to say, you can't just say this is a peace deal, sign, let's go. It doesn't work like that. It has to mean something. And we're not getting at the moment the message that it means very much. It looks like the Taliban are just going through the motions in order to wait out the last American soldier going on May the 1st and then attack the government anywhere and everywhere they can in order to overthrow it. The deal breaker is that Trump did not secure another term. And in fact, now we've got the presidency, we've got the Biden administration in, who are reviewing the Doha deal and are much more likely to say, wait a minute, we're not pulling out by May the 1st because the Taliban have not adhered to reducing violence, nor have adhered to breaking their relationship with al-Qaeda. Taking that one step further, no one knows what will happen then. That means if the Americans stay in some capacity, NATO will stay in some capacity. That means gives the Taliban a number of options. One of the options being, well, let's attack Western targets where we can in order to test the will of the Western community to stay here any longer. So we're probably going to get a, a fairly bloody spring and summer. Is there any sense yet of what the Biden policy might be or how long they might commit to stay in Afghanistan? There is a real sense with the Biden administration that this isn't, you know, I spoke to some of the Afghan officials involved in this. I spoke to their vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and their national security advisor, Dr. Mahib. It was very difficult for them to communicate with the Americans. Trump was described to me by one very senior Afghan leader as a man who choked the world, who had no attention to detail in Afghanistan and wanted only to railroad this deal through for his own political ends. There's a feeling with the Biden administration that they've got a much more coherent, much more joined up administration that is going to listen to the concerns of the Afghan government rather than just embolden the Taliban by putting them on the phone to President Trump and releasing five and a half thousand prisoners. 400 of those prisoners had committed crimes so grievous that there was no element within the Afghan legal system which could have allowed for them to be pardoned. The deal agreed under Donald Trump forced the Afghan government to release thousands of Taliban prisoners before they could even sit down to negotiate a peace deal. Not only did this release some of the most dangerous Taliban fighters back onto the streets just as American soldiers would be leaving, but it also took away one of the Afghan government's most important bargaining chips in dealing with the Taliban. But the Americans forced them to comply. They essentially had the doors opened through American threats to withdraw ammunition and finances from the Afghan government. So there is a feeling of much greater optimism that the Biden administration will listen to the Afghan government and will attempt to get the Taliban to have some sort of traction with the spirit, details and understanding of that deal, which will mean that the Americans will not go until the Taliban prove themselves evidentially willing partners in the Doha process. You spoke to the Vice President, Amrullah Saleh. What did he say about the deal that they'd been forced to live by? What did he think of Trump and the deal that the Americans had imposed on them? Oh, he gave me a couple of fantastic lines he was saying. I am ready to die with a 
just hit with a hundred bullets. That he'd prefer to be killed with a head and heart full of bullets. But not be part of an elite deal which will sell the right of my people to a medieval terrorist group. Than be part of an elite which sold out his people to a medieval terrorist organization. May I add, it's probably, you know, sounds like polemic, but I mean, the guy's got a pretty proven track record of surviving assassination attempts, fighting it out. He once said he was an entirely legitimate target for the Taliban, and he told his family that if ever he was killed, not to complain because he had killed enough of them with pride. So he doesn't say this lightly. Uh, he doesn't say this lightly. He doesn't say he, mean, he means that. I mean, he's also now the man who's been put in charge of managing security in Kabul during this spate of assassinations. What did he say about that? There was a huge controversy a couple of weeks ago, which was a slight storm in a teacup, but at the same time had a particularly Afghan flavour to it. So just after the killings of the judges, the killings of the judges were a particularly seismic crime. There's some pretty high sentiment going down in, in, in the city as well. People are uh, enraged that while the Taliban are are sitting in Doha, that sort of death squads are roaming Kabul, just killing people. So Vice President Amrullah Saleh says in a tweet, words to the effect that the judiciary should consider hanging anyone caught and convicted for involvement in this campaign of assassination. Wow. The Taliban then respond immediately, having denied that they're being part of it. They respond with, well, if you do that, then we're going to up the ante and kill even more people in Kabul, which is highly suggestive that it is because they're involved in the first place, right? So you get this threat and then you get a counter threat, really hot emotions. And then NATO get the heebie-jeebies because they then think that, you know, the Afghan government might start hanging Taliban prisoners and the Taliban might start doing suicide attacks throughout Kabul. And the whole Doha process might collapse even before the 1st of May deadline comes around. I spoke to Amrullah about this and he said, well, I didn't say I was going to hang them. I said the judiciary should consider hanging them. I say the Afghan judiciary system must respond to the sentiment of the Afghan people who see capital punishment as a solution to stop the reign of terror. He said, I haven't got the power to hang them myself, but if I did... It's not in my authority to execute the prisoner. If it was, I would have done it. You know me, I would have not hesitated a second. I would have signed. I would certainly say yes and sign off on the, on the sentences. And then he said... Is it red or it's rose? If it is red... Then kill our killers. Then kill my killer. That's it. From that, it doesn't sound like relations between the Afghan government and the Taliban are particularly close. How is that process going? Because they are supposed to be in talks. They're supposed to be in talks, certainly as of a couple of days ago, though the respective delegations were in Doha. They weren't meeting up close and personal to talk about very much. Um, they'll be under a whole lot of pressure to do so. But it looks, as of a few days ago, it was certainly pretty stalled. No important point has even been discussed face to face. Tweeting threats at each other instead. Well, tweeting threats at each other, but also killing a lot of people. You've been visiting Afghanistan for decades how does this compare? How did the state of the country compare to previous visits? It depends where you are in Afghanistan. If you live in Helmand, then this is a worse era than it was pre-2001. But if you live in Kabul, 
a very senior journalist, Afghan journalist, said to me there, Americans talk about this as our longest war, but we in Kabul talk about it as our longest peace. Really? Now, that was a very interesting thing to say. You know, thinking back to how Kabul was when I first went there in 1995, the civil war was going on, the Taliban were actually marching up to the city's edge. The whole city was absolutely miserable. Really tough, dangerous place. Mines everywhere, rockets incoming, sporadic electricity, hardcore stuff. Gosh, compared to that, it's a neon-lit metropolis these days. I mean, okay, it's not quite a neon-lit metropolis, but I mean, it's much, much better. But it depends which area you do go into. Some areas of the country which have fought over very heavily now, which weren't previously, and and that can be vice versa as well. So how optimistic are you for, for the future of the country? I'm not very optimistic at all. I think it's a a very difficult problem. There's very few good options. There's no doubt that Western forces should leave sooner rather than later. But at the same time, the Americans are highly likely to want to keep a counter-terrorism presence there. Also, Afghanistan sits right between Iran and China. It would be extremely useful for the Americans to have some sort of presence there, whether it's military or intelligence or, or eavesdropping. I think it's unlikely they'll want to leave that soon. I don't think they can leave. Logistically, I don't think they'll manage to leave by the 1st of May. Not a chance. But I mean, I don't think they want to leave by the 1st of May. I think they're very concerned about legacy as well. They don't want to leave and the whole country collapses. You'll have, as you did in jihad times, millions of people on the move. Going into Pakistan, Kabul wrecked again, civil war, infighting, no resolution. You know, bad, bad, bad times for everybody and everybody in that region if that happens. And it would look like an American policy of 20 years had been an abject failure and a NATO policy too. People want to avoid that. So let's see what happens. But I don't see peace coming anytime soon. And I see the consequences of a badly managed attempt at peace as probably worse than the consequences of a managed long-term conflict. And that's a, that's a grim thing to say, but it's a, a reality, it's a truth. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd. You can read more of Anthony's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. And if you have a story that you think we should be covering or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.